The problem with faking it is that it may give you a little short-term bump of success, but lies beget lies. Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. Okay, let's do this. All right, everyone, thank you for joining. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about how to stay authentic throughout your career. I'm Fadi Baklini. I'll be your co-host for the evening. Uh, I am the director of product. Ma- I am the director of product management and NLX. And with me today is Sabrina Horn, who is an award C- award-winning CEO, uh, an expert, and advisor with over 30 years of experience. Uh, Sabrina, I'll let you fill in the rest. Yeah. Well, so, hi everybody. It's great to be talking with you all tonight. Yeah, I um I started a PR agency in the in Silicon Valley when I was 29 years old. And um, in 1991, and so I was like probably one of a handful of female CEOs at that time and uh, ran the company for 25 years. Uh, We had offices in ultimately many different locations and global partnerships. And, you know, we, we just put like literally thousands of companies, startups on the map and handled everything from for them from crises to product launches and everything in between and and then i sold uh, my company in 2015 to fin partners which is a global marketing agency worked for them for a couple of years it was great and then i decided it was time to spend time with my my family and i wrote this book that's why we're here today awesome yeah it was uh just just for the audience to know i I read the book willingly. It was it was very engaging. I read it in about a day and a half, just because it was one of those books that was so well written that I, I just couldn't put it down. And it, honestly, when I was asked to to co-host the session with you, I was like, oh, okay, you know, Sabrina Horn sounds good, you know, CEO, that's great. But I think throughout while I was flipping through the pages of the book, and by the way, just so everyone knows, Sabrina and I do not know each other. Besides, you know, we just we just literally just met, so I did not know anything about her. And I was just in awe of all the accomplishments you made. And actually, before we kind of dive into the, the content of the book itself and maybe kind of a segue into staying authentic, can you just tell us how as a 29-year-old you decided to take that leap of faith and start your own PR firm or agency? I'm not entirely sure what the right adjective is there. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I... I had a head full of steam back then and I had learned enough to be dangerous, I guess. I mean, I I had four years of job experience, maybe five. And, um, but, but I had an idea and I developed a business plan for it that I thought through very, very carefully. And, you know, that's like essential to starting any business is thinking through the problem and the market opportunity that you're addressing. And, um, I'm the, an only child of German immigrants and my parents are entrepreneurs. And so, you know, I, I guess I had that in my DNA too, but um, I just, I, I had an idea with a market opportunity and a service offering. And I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give this a shot. And if I, if I don't do it, I'll never know if I would have been successful, but I really made for damn sure that, you know, if I, if I did fail, that, 
um, I had a good fallback position that I could find another job. And, you know, with, with that, I, I went out and I, I found my, my first client. Um, but, you know, it wasn't just like one day I woke up and decided to do it. Like I'd been thinking about it mm-hmm. for a couple of years. Yeah, I, I can relate that. Well, I didn't start my own company, but, uh, when I was kind of, when I was, when I was kind of trying to, trying to see if I should make leap of faith and join NLX, I definitely asked myself what in 10 years, if NLX ends up being successful, which it will, I, I say that with confidence, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, if, uh, if I would, uh, be okay with it. And ultimately my decision was that I wouldn't be okay with it. And, you know, even though, you know, what's the, what's the percentage 90% of startups fail. Um, I just had to take leap of faith because I knew that I had a fallback. You know, I, I would be able to get employment somewhere pretty relatively easily, especially in this market. Right. Uh, but, you know, you did mention your parents and there's something struck me in the book that I found extremely interesting. So you said your parents didn't believe in luck and your father told you that taught you that you have control of your destiny. So what would you say to those people that have popularized the concept that you know, the deck is stacked against the deck is stacked against you from the very start, or it's really difficult to overcome obstacles if you are starting from behind? Yeah, you know, I've heard that so many times. And I've mentored a lot of people, you know, older than me and younger than me on this issue. And and I felt that way sometimes too, like, this is just not going to work. Like, what the hell are you doing? You know, and, and you hear no enough times and you think, okay, maybe I should just hang it up and forget about it. My own father told me that I shouldn't do it, even when I had won my first client. And, and that was because he didn't want to see his daughter fail, right? As you said, nine out of 10 startups fail. So I guess my advice is like, you have to make it your passion to to find what motivates you, that burn in your gut that thing that you have to prove whether it's proving somebody else wrong or or you know proving to yourself that you can do it um that uh, all of that being said you have to do your homework you have to do the work the research and you have to write the plan and figure out what problem that are you really solving and you have to stay grounded in in reality like just because you think your idea you know may be great and but a, a lot of people may not and you cannot give up you absolutely cannot give up but you have to keep finding different ways to tell the story or different angles or different suppliers or a different market to find the, the right the right fit it's kind of like finding true love you you have to kiss a lot of frogs but, mm-hmm. but ultimately you know hope you find your person you can't give up so that, I guess that's my response. Yeah, kind of uh, maybe. So you, you got to put in the time and effort and grind it out a little bit to, yeah. to make it happen. Yeah. And like people will tell you no, people will be jealous of you. People will rain on your parade. And they'll, and then you'll think, you know, the deck is stacked against me. No. Right. The deck was mm-hmm. stacked against me so many times. And I was determined to blaze a trail past them, um, especially as, as a young woman in the 1990s. Oh, I, I can only imagine. I, and I, I would say, even though this isn't meant in a negative context, sometimes it's used in a negative way. You have to be kind of stubborn in a way. It, yeah. It's just, just, it just, you just, I want this and I don't care. I'm going to do my best to try to get to it. 
Yeah, you've heard the saying, squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's absolutely the truth, right? And, you know, there. That, that's why there's, you know, fewer leaders in the world than there are followers. It's really hard to, to innovate and to be an entrepreneur and to be a leader and push through all those barriers. Like, it's really freaking hard. Um, and of course, you have to have like a good idea. You can't just like push through, you know, a, an idea that doesn't work. It just doesn't make sense. But yeah, you do have to be stubborn. And speaking of stubborn, this is something that I, I noticed. The title of your book is Make It, Don't Fake It. And I was kind of interested before I opened the first page of the book, I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. And I thought of the YouTube video. I don't know if some members of the audience have seen this, but it was pretty popular for a while with the TED Talk that you also mentioned in the book. After I, I, I did read, I went through it. Uh, it's basically the, the TED Talk was about faking it till you make it. And so can you maybe expand on that a little bit? So what do you, because you meant it in a different context of faking it until you make it, make it. So can you expand on that? Yeah. So, okay. So fake it till you make it was originally like this innocent little tongue in cheek quip that people would say, like in passing, like, hey, you are you prepared for the meeting? Oh, fake it till you make it. And, you know, it was like, ha ha. But through social media and pop culture, it sort of mutated. And it became an excuse to basically lie or cheat or phone it in or pass the buck or whatever phrase you want to use, right, to get ahead. It became like sage business advice. And there are a lot of people that I've met in the last three, four, five years who've said if they, they feel like if they don't fake it, they won't be successful. And there's varying degrees to it, like acting as if, power posing, that was that TED talk that you mentioned. Like, yeah, does it? Yeah, by Amy mm -hmm. Cuddy. Like all of that, that's fine, actually. It's just a form of self-help. Just like, you know, I used to wear black all the time because it made me feel more confident. Like there's nothing wrong with that. You're not deceiving anybody. Um but where you cross the line into faking it is when you start to say and do things at other people's expense for personal gain. And so examples of that are like exaggerating the truth, lying on your resume, lying in a job interview, telling an investor that your product can do things that it really can't, over-promising to, to a customer about product capabilities in order to win a deal. These are the most common ways of, of, of faking it, but you know, I'm sure everybody knows somebody or perhaps some of us have, God forbid, done that ourselves. I mean, I, I have. But from there, you kind of go into the danger zone where you do things like stick your head in the sand, take credit for other people's work, um, selective truth telling where you're actually telling the truth, but leaving out certain facts and not being fully transparent and then of course, the trial of Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos. She is the greatest faker of all time. So that's, you know, you can go from like innocent to jail time. <laughs> and um, I put all this out in this this graphic that I call the fakeometer um, or the fake -ometer. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I, I do have a question before we get into that. Do you think there's a tipping point on the fakeometer? As in, you start out with kind of faking something to make yourself more confident, and then suddenly you find yourself inching and inching towards an actual lie that goes that you know, has external effects. Yeah. Is is there a tipping point? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's that where you where you think, you know what, just this once, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna stretch the truth a little bit. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna talk about, um, uh, you know, what my product can do, as I said, to like get a venture capital investor to take that second meeting. Well, guess, guess what? Like that VC is gonna do his or her due diligence and find out that you lied, okay? You lost that investor, you lost your credibility um, when you lie on your resume or in a job interview, that employer is, is going to fact check your references, you know? So there's the, the problem with faking it is that it may like give you a little short term bump of success, but lies beget lies. You keep doing it and you keep doing it. And then what happens is right. Ultimately the truth comes out and then you'll be exposed and you'll set yourself back and sabotage your success. So my point of this book is faking it doesn't help you make it. It actually helps you fail. Yeah. There are many nods throughout the book to just ethics in general and being an upstanding person. Yeah. For those that just joined us, I'm Fadi Baklini. I'm Director of Product Management at NLX. And with me today is Sabrina Horn, who is an award-winning CEO, tech industry communications expert and advisor with over 30 years of experience here to talk to us about how to stay authentic throughout your career. And by the way, I remember I just forgot to mention this earlier to the audience. Uh, if you have any questions, please, uh, you can either uh, message me through the app or Sabrina, obviously, or you can just uh, take a seat up here and we'll get to you as soon as we can. So we didn't get into what the fakeometer is. So do you want to explain that to people? Yeah, so the fakeometer is just this kind of a continuum, right? All the different ways that people fake it. And when I was writing the book, I was thinking about all these different examples and from the most innocent to, like I said, jail time. <laughs> and I put them in different buckets and put them on this continuum and, and uh, with examples of all you know, the different ways that, that people can fake it. And the reason for doing that is, is so you can see for yourself like, oh my God, like uh, there was that time that I faked it and I, and I did that. And the point is to help identify that and then dial into it to maybe you know, stop doing that because when you fake it, you'll ultimately be exposed because the truth comes out. Yeah, it always catches up to you. I, I'm, I'm just amazed with uh, Elizabeth Holmes. And I, I just don't understand how she expected to keep up with that lie. I'm just always amazed. Yeah, she was yeah. definitely probably an outlier in that perspective, very much on the right side of the spectrum. Yeah, the I, think, I think, oh, yeah, she's she's off the charts in the deep end. Like, she's right up there with Bernie, <laughs> Bernie Madoff, you know, who recently passed away and had that Ponzi scheme. But I think right now she's faking the fact that she failed. She's saying, mm. you know, I actually failed, but she's lying about that because she lied. the whole, Like, it's so convoluted. Um, and then before that, she said she claimed insanity. So she's changed her tune and then she blamed it on her her co-worker her partner and i mean it's, it's nuts yeah uh, i'm not sponsored by them but i will mention that the all-in podcast <laughs> has a has a pretty good take on it uh, so for those interested you guys should should listen to that well moving on it might be even related to that a little bit so i think a lot of people especially i think with the demographic that comes out to fishbowl struggle a little bit with imposter syndrome you know it's mm -hmm. one of those popular topics these days uh can you discuss, you know, what causes it and how can we get over it? 
Yeah, I, I get asked about imposter syndrome all the time. And it's definitely a hot topic. So imposter syndrome, the classic definition is this feeling that you get that the success you've achieved was is all a fraud that that you got it because of good luck, or because of good timing, or someone just handed to you. And it's this feeling that you'll be exposed, right, for, for your success, for your for your fake success, when in fact, you actually earn your success earnestly and honestly, you feel like an imposter. And it, it affects about 70% of all high achievers. So pretty much everybody on this call. And it, <laughs> and it affects um, as a percentage more women and, and minorities. And it happens when like you get a promotion or you change jobs and you go to a new company and you find yourself in an unfamiliar environment and people have certain expectations of you and there's all these new people that are CC'd on your email that you don't know. And you think like, oh my God, these people think that I'm like, you know, gonna bring home the bacon and fry it up in the pan and they don't, they, you know, I really can't do this. And that's what starts to make you feel like you're an imposter. Um, I experienced this myself when I sold my company and I was sudden, like on a Friday, I was the CEO of my own company. And on Monday morning, I was running this global technology practice for Finn Partners. And, you know, it was literally like I walked in a room and people thought the show was going to start. And I didn't know what imposter syndrome was then, but that's exactly what it was. And it, it paralyzed me. It made me actually like, like lose my confidence. And what happens when that occurs is that then you actually start to fake it because you feel like you have to be somebody that, that you're not to like meet their expectations. The other way that imposter syndrome happens is that if, if you are faking it all the time and you're, you are literally faking it so much that it consumes you and you do become an imposter. So you know, either way, it's it's a tough place to be. And it's really hard to shake the little green man on, off your shoulder if, if you have this. Would you say that some of today's hiring practices make you fake it? Because I found myself in these situations. And uh, I can't say I've, I've faked it, but I, didn't, I wasn't necessarily telling the truth where there was some sort of expectation during a job interview uh, that I knew I could do, but they just weren't seeing it in my resume because I had either done something adjacent to it or something that you know made me familiar with it, but I wasn't necessarily 100% comfortable with it. And if anyone from uh, NLX is listening, this is not the current job, so don't worry about that. <laughs> I've been in that situation too. I faked it in one of my first job interviews before I started my company. And I told my employer that I was a great writer and I got this job. And then like, I couldn't, I basically couldn't complete an English sentence. (laughs) 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 And I was actually put on probation. Um, Wow. Yeah. And I had to like dig myself out of that hole and work my way back up to, you know, this title that I had sold myself in as. You know, what it comes down to is, and this may sound silly, but like, you have to have an honest conversation with yourself and look at yourself in the mirror and make an honest assessment of what you're good at and what you're not so good at. And you have to decide within the boundaries of what is the truth, how far you're going to be willing, you know, to step on that line, or even cross it. Um, 
And I'm not here, you know, I'm, nobody's lily white on this call. Like we've all faked it, but we, but we have a purpose to be the best selves that we can be, to be the best people, to lead by example, to, sh to show our kids, you know, that we're honorable people and help them to grow up to be honorable adults. Um, and, and what I think is authentic, you, you may not think is authentic, you know, it's, it's like beauty, it's in the eye of the beholder. So, you know, you have to, again, come back to like, what are your core values? What are you good at? What did you, what were you not so good at? And then have like what I call a 60 minutes episode with yourself. What are those questions that you don't want to get that you don't have a good answer for? Come up with the answers, right? And practice those answers so that you can still be truthful, still be compelling, and you know, and and still try and, and get the job or or get the interview or get the phone call if if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, no it absolutely does. And I I think the it's 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 become a little rough, and some of the the, the jokes in my circle are you know, uh, especially with developers. Really, it's kind of like uh, there's a job posting for. I don't know, it, you know, you have to have 10 years of experience in some sort of language, coding language. And, you know, the language itself is three, three years old. So <laughs> I, I feel there's like a little bit going about with that on both sides where the company itself, you know, or the hiring manager or whoever, they themselves are not being authentic because they're, they're trying to portray an image that they're not. And I think that's probably where it gets a little dangerous. The the company's trying to be something it's not, and it's trying to hire people and mislead them, and that's kind of where the real problems start. Yeah, I mean, I I get it, right? And you can decide to play that game and be as inauthentic as they are, and then live with that, or you can be refreshingly honest. Being honest and operating with integrity is a really great marketing strategy right now because it's very refreshing. It builds trust. Right. And you don't have to call the guy who's interviewing you. You don't have to call bullshit on him and tell him that is the programming <laughs> language is like, really old. But, you know, what you can say is you can be on top of your game and say, you know, this this is what I'm really familiar with. And I think that, you know, th this is the sort of technology that this company is going to be looking for and you're interviewing me not just for today but for tomorrow and so you kind of have to think on your feet there and, and turn it a little bit but you also have to decide do you want to work for a company that's trying to basically lie or be something that it's not do you really want to do that because you're signing up for a couple of years of that no, 100%. I think one of the, I, I can't say I have a ton of mentees, really, but one of the things when I do get asked a question, uh, one of my answers is, uh, you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. Like, oh, it's, 100%. Yeah. The, the worst situation you can find yourself in is hating what you do every day. I don't think that benefits anybody, really. No. Uh, I mean, that that's how people get sick. <laughs> I mean, we had a, a no assholes policy at my company, and what that meant was that we would never keep a client that was abusive to our team or our staff, even if, you know, the money was incredible. And, and there were times when money was tight during the recession of 2008 and 2009. And I fired a client who was one of our highest paying clients because this woman who's the new CEO was abusive to my team. And I got great pleasure out of calling her on her way to the airport and told her she doesn't get to treat my people that way. Like, 
life is too short. And we've certainly realized that in the last year and a half with, with the pandemic. Don't sign up for something where you're compromising yourself. It's not worth it. Uh, absolutely. And I, I kind of wonder what would have happened because because uh, at that time, yeah, no, at the time you were a private company. And it kind of makes me think to something back in your book where you said, uh, you know, CEOs are not bulletproof, but they kind of make it seem that way, right? Is, is Do you think that's setting the incorrect expectation of, you know, CEOs in general, this big company, small companies, whatever, that you kind of have to be the Superman or Superwoman that never makes mistakes and just is always, you know, running at 110%. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Well, that, like, that's not true. <laughs> and um, that is like the popular, the pop culture reflection of a typical CEO. Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, but, but the, you know, but, but here's another point of view, like, for the privilege of having that job, you are a leader, and you do have to show strength and resilience. It's a mindset. It's a character trait. You are the one who has to have the vision and provide a path forward for everyone who's looking up to you. And that's part of the job. So you do have to be a person who is strong and who exudes that. But you also have to be balanced and you can match your confidence and resilience with humility. And, and this is um, what I've talked about recently, that humility is a superpower, I think, in leadership. And you can... you don't have to have all the answers. In fact, you should have just all the questions and realize that it's okay not to have all the you know, solutions to everything that people come to you with. You can say, you know what? That is a really, really excellent point. I wanna to talk to you more about that. Tell me more about what you're thinking and, and admitting mistakes when you've made them um, and asking for help. These are the traits of a confident leader, right? And a person who sort of levels the playing field and um, creates a more collaborative work culture. Oh, Allie, would you like to ask a question? Yeah, I would like to ask a question just because what Sabrina just said was so insightful. And so when you check all those boxes, when you have asked the questions, when you have taken you know, personal accountability, and when you have suggested solutions to maybe another adjacent part of the business... Um, that is not necessarily in your, you know, wheelhouse, but you see the problems and you see the solutions and you suggest it. Um, if that is not honored or respected or even listened to, and rather than listening to the people that have been working in the same company for several years, people just keep hiring executive after executive after executive that fails and fails and fails, do you, what what do you think you do in that situation as an employee and what would you tell companies um about the kind of confidence that relays or communicates there yeah i mean so this is an excellent question especially right now um during this great resignation or the great quit or you know whatever the term is you may realize that it's no longer a good fit and every employee who has thought through his or her point of view should have a voice and should be listened. And every company really needs to pay attention right now because people are realizing that they do have a voice and employers have to show the empathy and you can't fake it. You can't just bolt it on and decide we're going to be empathetic. You know, it's, it's bullshit. So, is, yes. They've been doing these like town halls where 
an executive will talk about themselves for about an hour and answer a few questions. And it's like, well, that's really great. But what about this? And it's just, it's disheartening. And I think that the message they're trying to send is that they're listening, but that's not the message that's being received. And I would love to do my part to impart that to the executives. Hey guys, we love this company and what we're doing and our mission, but we do not love the way we're treated. Yeah, I mean, it costs you nothing because then you know they need you. It costs you nothing to suggest, here's, here's a different way to channel our ideas and make us feel heard. You know, here's a, a Friday forum where, you know, you're not presenting to us and talking at us, but we can have a conversation. And ultimately, the fish stinks from the head down. And the leadership team and the CEO, you know, have to really believe, believe in this new way of communication. Otherwise, it's just never, it's never going to work. And then you need to take your ball somewhere else. But you should and you can present to the right people Here's how we think that a different sort of forum or channel for discussion might really behoove your leadership um, style and help your, your purpose or your cause. Thank you for coming on, Val. Uh, but I like what you said about intuition, Sabrina, in your, in your book. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. It's not really a sixth sense, but it's an amalgamation of bits of knowledge that you've learned along the way throughout your career. Can you tell us possibly the you know one of the biggest moments of intuitions you've had that you couldn't really justify? You just felt in your gut that there's something wrong or right, and you turned out to be correct. Yes, it was a go big or go home kind of moment. I decided to open up a New York office one year after 9-11 in 2002. And I was based in San Francisco. My head company was headquartered in San Francisco. And we already had an office in, in Boston. I was also going through a divorce at the same time and decided that I was going to relocate to New York with my infant children. And the feedback I got was, you're going through a midlife crisis. We already have a Boston office. Why don't you just get somebody else to open it? You know, there's no tech in New York anymore. There's no PR. It's all cleared out. You know, 9-11, forget it. And I was like, okay, you know, you tell me I can't do something. I wrote a business plan for that, for that idea. And the higher I, uh, the higher they raised the bar, I would like meet it and say, okay, I'll, I'll change my plan. I can do that. I'm going to prove to all of you that not only can I do this and do it successfully, but that it's going to create new opportunities for my company. You know, at the end of the day, a business plan is just words on paper with some numbers, but you still have to pull it off. And everybody thought that I was nuts, right? Because of all this other personal stuff I was going through. But I was on a mission and I just said, you know, I planted the flag on the moon and started this company when I didn't know anything and knew a lot less than I know now. <laughs> and, and we did okay so far. So I'm going to ask you to trust me. And that's one of those moments where you just know, and you can't explain it. But you, you just, you know, you do it and you just kind of cross your fingers a little bit behind your back and hope that, you know, luck is on your side. But that that was one of those moments. Did did it feel probably a little risky? Because, you know, you're you're from the you know, startup world uh, in tech. So 
when we're talking generally software, it's it's easier to iterate, I would say, and easier to make mistakes. But opening up an office in New York was a pretty big gamble. I mean, I, I, it might be an unfair question to ask, but did you feel there was a way you could learn from the experience and improve it along the way? Or was it just kind of a, I don't know, maybe a Hail Mary, if I, should, if I, if I could say that? Was yes. there any like point there? No, I mean... No, it wasn't. It wasn't a hail mary. It was. Yeah. Uh, it was like phase two of this company's growth, and I knew it was something we had to do. And I also knew that the best time to come into a market and do something new is when it's just sort of bottomed out and is starting to see signs of life. So I developed a strategy to network with all the venture capitalists that I knew in San Francisco and ask them for introductions to people they knew in New York. And through their good graces, got meetings. And, and since they control the purse strings of many of these companies, you know, they gave me introductions. Um, and then I had to go in and, and win the sale. So I, f- I found the right strategy at the right time. And I used a lot of the goodwill that I had created in the, in the first 10 years of my company's life to, to do it. And boy, I'll tell you, like the strategy changed monthly. And what I learned from Mm -hmm. that was, right, like you have to do contingency planning on steroids because when you're facing the unknown and you don't have all the answers, you have to have multiple plans in your back pocket. And so I very quickly, you know, realized like, okay, you know, if this happens, here's what I'm going to do. If that happens, here's what I'm going to do. And so I could like hope for the best and plan for the worst and kind of like find the middle. Do you think that part of that was also just taking the first step? Because when, when you look at something from the outside, everything always seems daunting. Um, I like to, not my terminology, but I, I like to reference it as the cone of uncertainty. You know, the, the unexpected and the unknown is so big and vast that you feel tiny in comparison and it just doesn't want to make you, it, it stops you from taking that first step. Do, do you think that was part of it? You just kind of said, okay, well, I'm going to take my first step and then things will just get clearer from there because it does sound that way. Yes, absolutely. And I was constantly doing what I wrote about in the book called Disarming Fear and Organizing My Risk. Like whenever I felt paralyzed and couldn't take that first step, I really dialed into like, okay, what am what am I so afraid of? Like, what's the worst that could happen? And when I realized like, okay, you know, here, here's just, I don't have to like think everything through to like nine months and four days and three minutes from now. I just need to get to tomorrow. And right when I realized that, I kind of broke it down and I could take that first step. And then the other thing I did was organizing the risk. Like I put it in buckets, like, okay, here's, the, here's what could go wrong with this. Here's what could go wrong with that. And I developed those contingency plans, like, like I said a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And that gave me the confidence to actually take that next step and conquer the fear of the unknown. I have a follow-up question to that. Would you give that same advice to aspiring CEOs? Because you do talk a lot about that, CEOs and founders and what they should do to stay authentic and make sure you know, they, run, they create a successful business. Would you say that same advice is, applies to those that are aspiring to create something? Oh, for sure. I mean, in my mind, you're always aspiring. If you're not aspiring to the next level, then you're not growing. And then you're just static, right? It's You're not moving forward. 
And so for me, I always had the saying that the day that I thought that I made it was the day I should quit my job. And so in my mind, I was always making it, you know, I was always aspiring to do something. And so I don't, I don't care if you're a new entrepreneur who's starting her first company, every company is different. And you're still going to be learning about that new industry and all the problems that you know, come with that job and that company and different stuff that falls from the sky that you have to deal with. Yeah, that's, that's true. And then following up with that, since you're a communication PR expert, I think, you know, there's there's no doubt about that. Is there something, a piece of advice you can give them in terms of how they communicate with uh, external stakeholders? Because again, tech world, guys, I'm sorry if, if you're not from the tech space, but when you're when you're founding a company, generally, you're either bootstrapped or you're, uh, you're, you're VC funded. Is there something in their communication strategy you think would be a good idea or some sort of template to follow in terms of communication style yeah yeah exact communication with uh with external stakeholders who could be venture capitalists or Mm -hmm. uh anybody who has a a stake in the business i think um yeah i mean the tech industry is a, a whole special world unto itself but there are some some things that apply to other industries in terms of communication. And that is to um, find clarity and understanding in what you're saying. And what I mean by that is tech, some technologies are very complicated. And the job of communications is to make technology understandable and acceptable and even embraceable, right? So So that we can deal with the change that technology creates. And if and if you if you think about that, like there's real power in how you communicate. It can be the difference between people trying a new product and and not, you know, mm-hmm. um, or using a word or you know what I call love marketing and and creating feelings of warmth and belonging and acceptance rather than than fear based marketing. And all of that can be applied, especially right now in a in a hopefully more and post-pandemic world where right every little word matters and our job in communication is to make things okay for people and not just to, to talk but also to listen and then to process that and use that knowledge to help create more understanding and to move the needle forward like if you can do that, that's a tremendous power and also a tremendous responsibility that so many people take for granted. You know, whether you're a CEO in tech and you just think your shit doesn't stink, sorry, and and, and you have, to, you know, and you're just going to say whatever you think, right, and lie to people like Elizabeth Holmes, right, or or whether you, you know, run a small business, a, a diner down down the street, right, like communication really matters and the, the power of a, of a word is so critical and i think we've lost that and we have to get back to that so where where do you think it breaks down you know we just talked about how to create a good strategy or at least work on a good strategy where do you think it breaks down the most usually in terms of communications yes yes well i think it starts with being truthful and being grounded in in reality particularly when you're in a crisis situation and not spinning the truth but just you know saying like here's the situation being very facing reality as harsh as it may be you know or we've made a mistake here's what happened here's what we're going to do about it never give false hope or make predictions and then over communicate that is so essential especially during uncertain times 
to over communicate. Even if what you have to say is exactly the same thing, people have a need to know. It's just like when your flight is delayed and the woman's standing behind the counter and like typing God knows what into her computer, like just tell us where the goddamn airplane is, right? Even if it's the same, you just want the update. And so I think like having a very clear strategy of, okay, what is the problem if there is one? What does success look like? You know, what do we want to try and achieve? And then working your way back to, okay, here's the roadmap. And I think oftentimes people think they have to, again, have all the answers. A perfect strategy can unfold in real time because reality is changing every day. And so sometimes, and especially in a crisis, you just need to get to tomorrow. And that can be defined as, as a success. But you have to be tireless and relentless about it. You can't just say something once and think that everybody understands, especially as a leader during times of change. Communicate often and frequently through multiple channels. And so, so important, create forums for other people to express themselves, to be heard, and then reflect that. That's a really good idea. You know what? If enough people are saying it, maybe there's, you know, something you need to listen to and then get back to them. You can't just hear their feedback and think you've done your job. Like you actually have to get back to people and say, here's what we're going to do about it. And if not, why? It's a delicate balance between listening to other people and then trusting yourself. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the buck stops with you if you're the leader and you, you can socialize the decision for as long as you want, but then you have to make the decision. And you know, trust me, not everybody is going to like the decision that you've made, but and that's why it's so hard to, to be to be a leader. But that is that is the fine balance. You, you cannot please everybody. At the end of the day, you, you have to make a decision that the right decision at the right time based on reality for the greater good of the whole. And that can be very, very difficult. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And especially when you're the decision maker and it kind of goes back to the earlier question about trusting your gut and intuition. I'm not saying take the Steve Jobsian approach where you're just an ass to everybody, uh, but I think you have to be okay as a leader with being the odd man out sometimes and yes. making a decision maybe and then even not making a decision based on what people are telling you. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I can give an example of that. When the internet bubble burst in 2001, and this was before we opened that office in New York, and I was eight months pregnant with my youngest daughter, Christina. And the business was just vaporizing around us every day. And I just prayed and hoped that it would turn around, that it would get better. I pretended that, you know, it, it really wasn't as bad and that we would be okay. And somebody came to me, one of my advisors, and said, Sabrina, you have to protect the financial health of this company. And as much as you don't want to do this, you're going to have to lay some people off. And I was so emotional. I was pregnant. And wanted to focus on having a baby and angry that all these internet companies were imploding around me. But, you know, I had to do it and I had to let the, some people go in order to keep my, my company moving forward, right? To protect the financial health of the company. And when I made that decision with my leadership team and I sat down in front of the whole company um, and, I, and I said, you know, this is killing me. It's not killing me as much as it's killing everybody that we had to let go because they are the ones who have to go home to their families and figure out where they're going to get their income from. But make no mistake, you have to make some really unpopular decisions and 
know that people resent you when you have no choice, you know. And that's where being in those situations is, is enough to make you not want to do it anymore. Do you think there's a type of person that struggles with that more than another? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yes. uh, let, me, let, let me be a little more blunt, uh, just because women tend to be more agreeable. Uh, not, not, not a personal observation, just saying that that's kind of the, maybe it's a myth, maybe it's not, but they say women tend to be more agreeable. So do you think women in general struggle with kind of going against the grain or is that just a misconception? I think that used to be a lot more of the case of the situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that is much less so the case now because so many women are breadwinners, primary breadwinners or equal, you know, uh, bringing home the bacon to their families. And a lot more women are in the workforce in senior executive level positions than five years ago, than 10 years ago, and certainly when I started out. And it's not for everyone. There are a lot of men I know who would never, ever touch wanting to be a, a leader in that position because it's really freaking hard. But I think that in, in certain industries, for example, in tech, the feeling you get is that anybody, whether you're male or, or female, you can start a company. And mm -hmm. to fail, it's not a bad thing. It, you know, it's like it's almost expected of you that you'll fail. So it's it's also kind of industry specific, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a yeah. I, I would say there's probably a big difference just in terms of uh, what you can do now versus what you could do back probably when you were when when you were just a, a, a nascent entrepreneur. Uh, starting out, I really would say that the landscape has changed a lot. Yes. And I would say, you know, to any woman who would ask me that question, I would be like, don't you ever think that for a second. You can do anything you want, just like any man, if you set your mind to it and do your homework and never give up. And, you know, what was your first question when you feel like the deck is stacked against you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, no, like, don't you ever think that and, and never give up and pursue your dreams and um and don't fake it <laughs> well with, with that i will ask you since we're time's almost wrapping up i'll ask you one last question about faking it and this is barbie boris towards the pop culture with social media influence today just being everywhere you know whether you go on instagram facebook they're just everywhere right and there's so many people that look up to them i mean uh, kim kardashian's made an empire out of that do you really think that as a society we should be kind of glorifying these people or are they in that benefit oh my god like it's such a loaded word now and i'm so sick of it when social media first hit the internet everybody thought that they were an editor and now you know everybody thinks they're an influencer and they can just call themselves an influencer and therefore they are it's such bs so i think you need to research the people that you want to follow and that you want to trust for information and guidance just like you would research an analyst or developing a relationship with somebody that you, that you want to trust um ultimately the fakers the influencers who are are fakers they won't last that you know there'll be a flash in the pan and they'll leave some collateral damage along the way and you want to be careful that you you don't become a part of that the real influencers the real ones deliver they say things that have meaning that have credibility and and they follow through and they're consistent so those are the ones who provide a net net benefit to society not all the other riffraff yeah, so like everything, there's it's a mixed bag and it's up to the person to look into them and see 
what makes sense, what doesn't, and, you know, actually discern, you know, and get educated on what is the right thing and what is the wrong thing. Yeah, just just like, I know we have to wrap up, but like, just because you're, you have a title that says CEO next to your name, doesn't mean you're going to be great, you know, you have to earn it. Sabrina, thank you so much. This was great. How can people reach you after this uh, live session? Yes, you can email me at uh, sabrina at sabrinahorn.com. My website is sabrinahorn.com. And if you are interested in getting a copy of my book, you can just go to Amazon, of course, or you can go to my website, sabrinahorn.com forward slash book. And there are all sorts of links to all different online retailers there. It's a great read, guys. I highly recommend it. And if you want to get in touch with me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at I am a underscore Fadi or LinkedIn or just message me through here. Happy to chat anytime. With that, Sabrina, thank you so much. Rachel, thank you so much for allowing us to host this. And uh, we'll chat with everybody soon. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. That's all, folks. Thanks again for listening to Hardly Working. Join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and, who knows, end up here. Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon!